again, let's take our Bible to and go to Second Peter chapter one. I have a question for all of you. How do you experience God? I think it's a very timely question to ask because we have recently heard of an amazing news of the Asbury Revival. I know most of you know it, but some of you might not. So let me explain what the Asbury Revival is. The Asbury Revival was a never-ending chapel service at Asbury College, Wilmore, Kentucky. That started on February 8th and ended on February 23rd, lasting over a week without pause. When I say without pause, it means it went on day and night. The same service continued for about eight days. On the ninth day, the school discontinued the ongoing service and offered regularly scheduled chapel services for, for both students and the public. The news of the re revival quickly spread, and tens of thousands of people from all over the United States and even from overseas came to visit that amazing event. One news outlet reported that over 50,000 people had attended the continuous chapel service over a 16-day period. But of course, it's done past week. So how should we understand this amazing event? Should we embrace it and say that it is a true revival? Or should we, should we reject it and say that these are fanatics who are driven by emotionalism? Well, here are my two cents on this event. First, we should be thankful that there were many people who desired to worship God. The, usually the news that we hear about Christianity are not news about people gathering to worship God, right? <laughs> usually bad things are on the news media, but this time it wasn't that. It was a good news that people were gathering to worship God. While there were a few suspicious events during the service, especially in terms of charismatic movement, overall the service was conducted in an orderly manner. The service primarily involved singing, praying, reading scriptures, personal testimonies, and confessions of sins. And of course, there are many different reports. You know, some people say there are a lot of fanatics, and some people say it was done orderly manner. So I actually researched broadly, as broadly as possible, seeing interviews of the people who visited really in, in person. And mostly, I think it was done orderly manner. You know, there were some events that were a little suspicious, but mostly it was okay. And that's, that's the impression I got. But here's my second thought. It's too early to conclude that it was a true revival. Historically speaking, true revivals are marked by more than just prolonged services. So, long-lasting services alone do not necessarily signify a revival. A true revival does not stay in one service or one building. But the phenomenon we saw was that what? People were gathering to one building. The building was so full, so people were gathering around that building trying to worship God. The so true revival extends beyond one church or college campus building and makes a lasting and profound impact on nearby communities with the power of the gospel. 
I want to emphasize the power of the gospel. True revival is always accompanying the manifestation of the power of the gospel. The hallmark of a true revival is not just a prolonged service, but a multitude of saved and repentant souls. For example, during the 1907 Pyongyang revival. What? Pyongyang? What is Pyongyang? It is the capital city of North Korea. And then, of course, we have one Korea in 1907. And Pyongyang, of course, was one of the big cities in the north. And there was a great revival that lasted months and years. And then ten, tens of thousands of Koreans became Christians, and hundreds of churches were established throughout the Korean Peninsula. I may be one of the products of this revival. I don't know. I cannot you know, trace back my faith line. But maybe in God's sight, maybe I'm the one of the products there. In 1907, there was great revival. So many people got saved. So many churches were established. Even out of that, there was a seminary that was established in Pyongyang, which still lasts in Seoul. And that was really great revival. And a lot of people saved and repented. And a true revival also impacts the culture of society. It's not just the people getting saved, but it impacts the culture. For example, following the 1904 Wales revival, Wales crime rates significantly dropped. It is understandable because about 10, I'm sorry, 100,000 to 150,000 people became Christians as a result of the Wales revival. Actually, Korean revival 1907 was influenced by Wales revival. It was uh, kind of you know same on the same boat. So we haven't seen anything like these from the Asbury event yet. So I am very hesitant to call it a revival yet. But of course, the media wants to emphasize it as a revival. But I don't think it's a revival yet. As we think about an event like the extraordinarily prolonged Ashbury College's Chapel, we have to make sure of one important truth about experiencing God. Many people who visited the Ashbury event claimed that they felt God's powerful presence there in the small chapel. That's why so many people traveled to Wilmore, Kentucky, past two weeks. They wanted to experience God on that campus. While we don't need to discredit these people's claim that they experienced God during the chapel service, we have to ask ourselves one very important question. Did we all have to travel to Wilmore, Kentucky to experience God's presence? I didn't go. Should I have gone to experience that? What about now? Is the service still going? No, it's over. The chapel service is over, and where do we experience God's presence now? So here's a common problem among modern Christians. We tend to prefer experiencing God with our five senses. We love to see things, we love to hear things, and we love to touch things with our five senses. For instance, there are a lot of people posting videos about what they saw, like visions of Jesus, 
the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, or sometimes dreams that they had. They want to share those things online so that they can claim that I experienced God through those amazing miracles or hearing God's audible voice. You know, God told me to do something, so I did this or did that. Or testimonies of going to heaven or going to hell. Usually those books sell very well. And miraculous healings, you know, if you experience that somehow, you are really close to God. Or sometimes, you know, speaking in tongues. And emotion-filled worship services and conferences. That's what most Christians prefer as they want to experience God. My question again is this, do we have to have these extraordinary experiences to experience God? While we shouldn't be too quick to judge or condemn the people who claim that they have experienced God in a very special way, we Christians must remember this one very important truth. The most certain means by which we experience God is the Bible. Let me say it again. The most certain means by which we experience God is the Bible, which is God-given revelation of himself. If you look at the Bible, what you see is God himself. So here's my first point for today. The Bible is the revealed word of God given through prophets. The Bible is the revealed word of God given through prophets. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Knowing this verse, Peter says, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So what we can conclude from this statement here is though that no prophecies of, of scripture, any part of scripture didn't originate from man. The first thing we have to make sure about the Bible is that the Bible didn't come from humans. So, you know, 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God. All scripture. Or you can translate it like this. All scripture is breathed out by God. So every word you find in the Bible is the every breath that comes out of God's mouth. Thus, every word in the Bible is a God-given word or a God-spoken word. Again, if you look at verse 20 and 21, Peter used the word prophecy, the prophecy of Scripture or prophecy that never came by the will of man. What do you think of the word, you know, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the, the word prophecy? Many people commonly think that the word prophecy only means future prediction. Right? That's the way people use this word these days. But in the Bible, prophecy refers not only to future prediction, but also to all revelation of God's will. Therefore, we, when we read the word prophecy, we shouldn't automatically think that it is only a prediction about the future. Of course, biblical prophecy contains a lot of future events, but it also often reveals God's present will for his people in specific times and places. So biblical prophecy contains both foretelling, what is foretelling that is prediction of the future, and also, I'm sorry, it's not foretelling, 
foretelling, there's a prediction of the future, and there's a foretelling that is a proclamation of God's will for the day. Then, how did God give us his prophetic word to us? Let's look at verse 21 again. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So when the Spirit of God came upon a prophet, he spoke God's word to his people. And when the same prophet wrote what he spoke, that became the prophecy of Scripture. Scripture means it's written down. So to understand the, the way that the Holy Spirit used the prophets to speak or write God's word, we need to think of the way the wind moves or carry a sailboat. So the Holy Spirit moved the prophets to speak or write God's word just like the wind moves a sailboat. So imagine you are out sailing on a beautiful day, feeling the wind uh, that, that fills your sails and carry you across the water. Just as the wind moves the sailboat, the Holy Spirit moved the prophets to speak or write the individual words of the Bible. The Holy Spirit guided the holy men of God as they wrote down the words that God wanted them to communicate with his people. The prophets didn't just make up these words on their own. They were moved by the Spirit, just as the wind moves a sailboat. And just as the wind fills the sail and propels the boat forward, the Holy Spirit filled the prophets and propelled the writing of the Bible forward. So that's, that's the picture that Peter gives us in today's text. So when we read the Bible written by the prophets who are moved by the Holy Spirit of God, we hear the very words of God. Because the Bible is God's very word that reveals God himself. Whenever we open the pages of this book, whenever you open it, you can hear God's very voice and experience him. That's the certainty we can get from today's text. And here's the second point for today's message. The Bible is the most certain means by which we experience God. The Bible is the most certain means by which we experience God. But being the chief disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter often experienced God with his five senses. He's the one of the few who could experience God in an amazing way. So one of the most amazing experiences he had happened at the Mount of Transfiguration. What is the Mount of Transfiguration? Who changed in that mount? Jesus Christ changed. He was transformed. And you can find this event in Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9. And at this mountain, Peter saw God's glory with his own eyes, and he heard God's voice with his own ears. So we, we can look at Paul's experience at the Mount of Transfiguration in today's text. First uh, Second Peter 1, 16, Peter says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So he's talking about the future coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he's pointing his readers to his past experience when he saw 
the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. When was it, of course, where was it that was the Mount of Transfiguration? Verse 17, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. The Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And at the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter saw the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God. So let's go to Matthew 17 together. Matthew 17, you find the exact text that describes how Peter experienced the glory and power of Jesus Matthew 17, verse 1, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. You see how that happened? Jesus suddenly became shine, began to shine. And his face was like a sun, the sun, and his clothes were like the white, you know, brilliant light. And of course, there was a Moses and Elijah appeared to him. They were talking. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud, bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. You see here? Peter experienced an amazing thing. He saw Jesus' glory in his perfect glorification. And also he, saw, he heard the very voice of the Father, which said, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So, Second uh, Peter 1, 18 and 19, uh, it says, and we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter confirms that what he experienced was real. It was not a fake event. It was a real historical event. But here is a very important piece of information for us to remember today. Peter doesn't stop with his personal experience with God. People usually stop at there. When they have a very interesting experience with God, they just want to talk about their experiences and they just stop there. And who gets the glory? Themselves. But Peter doesn't stop there. And he goes on to say that there is another important means by which every believer can experience God. Let's come back to the first, uh, second Peter chapter 1, verse 19. Peter says, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. Or King James Version says, A more sure word of prophecy. The ESV says, The prophetic word more fully confirmed. And that Bible says, The prophetic word as an altogether reliable thing which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So what does Peter say about the Bible right after he explains his experience at the Mount of Transfiguration? He says that the prophetic word or the Bible is as reliable as what he experienced at the Mount of Transfiguration. So just like the 
father commanded Peter to listen to Jesus, who was his well-beloved son, Peter says that we also need to heed or listen to the prophetic word as a light that expels darkness from our hearts. So Peter repeats what, Jesus, what, what the Father commanded him. Listen to Jesus. And Peter turns to us and says, you listen to Jesus and listen to the Bible. Why? Because they are the same thing. So some interpreters have tried to argue that in this text, Peter is saying that the prophetic scripture is more reliable than his experience at the Mount of Transfiguration. And let, let me say the King James translation again. A more sure word of prophecy. The ESV. The prophetic word that's more fully conferred, co confirmed. So there's a kind of, you know, the comparative idea. You know, this is experience I had. And this is the word of God, but this is more sure word of prophecy. This says, gives a sense that his experience is inferior to the Bible itself. And actually, if you look at the Greek text, it is true that the word in Greek has a comparative sense. So like a more sure or more certain. But I don't think that's Peter's point in today's text. In the immediate context, Peter is trying to argue that the promise of the Lord's return is not a favor-like lie, but an absolutely certain reality. Let's look at verse 16 again. 2 Peter 1, 16, For we did not follow calling devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but they, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So to support this certain reality, Peter gives two pieces of evidence. So what he's arguing is this. You know, Christ has the power and glory, and he's going to come back for sure. He's going to come back with the same power and glory that I experienced. But, so, but let, me, let me explain how that's real. I mean, why it's so certain. The first piece of information that he gives is his own personal experience. He brings up his personal experience at the Mount of Transfiguration, where he saw the power and glory of the Son of God, who will certainly return with the same power and glory at his second coming. So that's his first evidence. And the second evidence he gives is the Bible itself. Beginning with verse 19, he supports the reality of the Lord's return by pointing us to the Old Testament, which prophesies his powerful and glorious return. So because Peter is using these two pieces of evidence, first, again, his own experience and also biblical evidence, he's using these two as proof of Jesus' glorious return, we shouldn't think that Peter's argument is that the Bible is more reliable than his experience itself. But rather, for Peter, both are important. For, uh, in other words, the biblical witness to the Lord's return is as reliable as his own experience at the Mount of Transfiguration in terms of proving the certainty of Jesus' second coming. So also in Koine Greek, a comparative form can have an elative sense. What is elative sense? It means that the Greek word certain has a force of superiority without the sense of comparison. So actually, I like the Net Bible translation. So Net Bible says this. Um, let me go back and read. It says, the prophetic word as an altogether reliable thing. So Peter's argument is that the, the word of God, the prophet prophecy is really, really reliable. 
the superiority of the, the certainty of the word of God. I think that's what Peter is saying here. So for Peter, there was no difference between hearing God's voice with his ears and hearing it by reading the Bible. This is an amazing truth that we find in Peter's words here. So to argue that the Bible is more important than our actual experiences in experiencing God, actually we should go to the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And Brother Jacob read it for us. Let's go to Luke 16 again. Luke 16, verses 19 and 31, we find the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And here, the Lord Jesus emphasized that the reading and believing the Bible is more important than experiencing a miraculous event. And I'm not going to you know, take it too long because we already read the text, but we all are familiar with this story, right? There was a rich man who was living in luxury, and there was a poor man, the beggar, Lazarus, and they were living close by, but they really didn't intersect with each other. And both died. And where do we find the rich man? In Hades or hell, in fire. He was being tormented. And of course, Lazarus is found in the Abraham's bosom. Probably means paradise. And somehow, the rich men were able to see Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. And he's telling Abraham, Father Abraham, would you send that? Guy who used to be stay, sitting at my door, <laughs> bring, take him, take him, bring, uh, send him to me so he can cool my tongue with a, a bit of water in his fingertip. And Father Abraham said, no, 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 no. There's a big chasm. There's a big gap between you and me, you and me, and we, we can't pass each other. And then in verse 27, the rich man says, he be I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into the place, this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man again said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. What is the argument of this, this rich man? If my brothers experience an extraordinary event like Lazarus coming back to life from the dead, I'm sure they will repent for their salvation. That's his argument. And that's understandable, isn't it? I mean, if you see a dead person who died and coming back to life, I mean, why wouldn't you believe what he is saying? But in verse 31, Abraham said, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In the Bible's times, the expression Moses and the prophets referred to the writings of Moses and the prophets, which is the Old Testament. So Jesus' point in the story is that it is better to listen to the Bible than to see a miraculous sign like a dead man coming back to life to repent for salvation. So even if Lazarus were to come back to life and urge the rich man's five brothers to repent, they still wouldn't listen if they didn't pay attention to the Old Testament scriptures that they already had access to. Of course they did, right? And they didn't listen. So very interestingly, there was another Lazarus in John who came back to life through Jesus' resurrecting power. That's John 12. So let's go there. 
John 12. Do you know what the religious leaders did when they saw Jesus' raising of Lazarus? You, you would think that they would repent and believe Jesus, right? I mean, this Jesus guy, I mean, can, he can raise the dead people from the dead. I mean, let's not, if we were them, I mean, that we would have not, okay, let's not mess with him anymore. He has to be the Messiah. He has to be the prophet from God. Let's honor him instead of persecuting him. That would be a natural you know, reasoning in our hearts and thoughts. But look at what they did to Jesus and Lazarus after the resurrection of Lazarus. Chapter 12, verse 9. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, Jesus was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Of course, you know, the detail of the story is that he died four days ago. His body was still starting to rot and stink. And Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. And his body was restored and came back to life. So they were, wanted to see that. Verse 10, but the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also. Amazing. Because on account of him, many of the Jews went away, believed in Jesus. You see here? The resurrection of the dead, the most, one of the most miraculous, greatest miraculous signs that we can experience. That didn't convince these unbelievers to believe Jesus. That's what Jesus means when he says, hey, rich man, it doesn't matter whether Lazarus is risen or not. If they don't listen to the word of God, the Bible, they will not believe anything about me. And because of this truth, I feel so sorry for the people who try to experience God with their five senses while neglecting or ignoring the Bible. Both Jesus and Peter teach that the most reliable witness to God is what? The Bible. Of course, personal experiences are still important, but they can be very subjective. And many times, they can be misled easily. But there's one certain means by which everyone can experience God without failure, as long as they believe it. What is this? The Bible. But tens of billions of Christians, here Christians, are still wrongly pursuing miraculous or emotional encounters to experience God today. I'm not saying emotions aren't important. If you experience God from the Bible, you will be emotionally charged. That's what I experienced. But if you pursue emotion itself to experience God, you're in the wrong route. Remember this truth. The most certain means by which we experience God is the Bible. So as we open the pages of the Bible, we experience God along with the people in the Bible who experience God with their five senses. This is the truth that I found myself in my life. I used to neglect the Bible as a Christian, but when I began to read it and believed it, I began to experience God in mighty, mighty ways. For instance, when I began to read first chapter of Genesis, what do you find? In the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. How did he do it? How did he do it? He spoke. Let there be light. There was light. 
And when I read it with faith, I experienced God's creating power right there. I have to fall down on my knees and worship this creator who created everything out of nothing by simply speaking it. What about the parting of the Red Sea in Exodus? When the wind was blowing, and, you know, the, of course, the movie, uh, the Ten Commandments, gave us a wrong impression about that event. You know, Moses, you know, holding his hands, and then wind comes, and then there's a two, you know, walls of water immediately, right, in the movie. But that wasn't the case. There was a wind coming, blowing over a night. And they, it took a while, many hours. And then, of course, there were two standing waters in the middle of the Red Sea, and then the Israelites were walking. The Bible is very specific. They were walking in the dry ground. When I read it with faith, through the lens of my faith, I had to again fall down on my knees. Moses says, be quiet. Be still. Stop talking. Stop complaining. Just look at what God can do for you. Just experience his salvation. And there with the Israelites, I experienced salvation. That God can write what's, God can work, work, work for me. And there I worship God along with the Israelites. And what about the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ? When he was being naked, spitted upon, when he was lashed, flogged, and wearing the thorn crowns, and holding the, the, the cross beams, and he couldn't bear them because he was so exhausted. And Simeon coming along and holding his cross beams for him. And he was finally there at the hill of, the, of Calvary, and the Roman soldiers is nailing him down on the cross. And Jesus Christ is crying, Lama, Lama, Sabbath, Eloi, Lama, Sabbath, Bakhtani. What does it mean? My God, oh my God, why are you forsaking me? How can you? Read that. How can you not read that with tears? With the real turmoil of emotions when you believe that. And, and when the darkness was everywhere, I believe it was everywhere in the entire world. Nothing could be seen there. Why? The Son of God becoming sin for us who knew no sin so that we may become the righteousness of God. So when I read that, in, whether in the Bible, I had to weep. And worship this Jesus who bore my sins on the cross. What about the event that happened after three days? Three, three days later, on the tomb. There was empty tomb. And there are angels telling the ladies, Hey, this man, Jesus, according to his words, risen again. And his ascension and his power is being displayed through his prophets, uh, his apostles in the book of Acts. What do you experience there? You experience God firsthand through the lens of your faith that God is speaking to me and I experience him right there along with these people who have experienced God. And I hope you have the same experiences as I do. It doesn't matter where you are. You may be in Wilmer, Kentucky, or in Cary, North Carolina. Wherever or whenever you open the Bible and read it with faith, you can touch and feel the very heart of God. Since we are in Second Peter today, 
I want to take one step further into the reliability of the Bible. So when Peter says the prophecy of Scripture in today's text, he refers to the Old Testament, right? So then can, how can we be sure that the New Testament is God's word? According to Peter, Old Testament is absolutely God's word. Then how can we be sure that the New Testament is also God's word? So point number three, both the Old and New Testaments are the means by which we experience God. So 2 Peter is a great letter in many ways, but it is especially precious because it gives us evidence that the New Testament also is the very word of God. So according to Peter, the teachings of the apostles of the New Testament are as authoritative as the Old Testament. Let's go to chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Peter says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, the Old Testament prophets, right? The words that were spoken in the past by the prophets and of the commandment of us who the apostles of the Lord, Lord and Savior. You see here? He's referring to the words of the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New Testament on the same level. That's what Peter is doing it here. And we know that these apostles were the ones who were used to produce the New Testament. Did you know that actually there are some New Testament authors who were not apostles? So how can we explain it then? Of course, Matthew was apostle, John was apostle, Paul was apostle, and Peter was apostle. What about Mark? What about Mark? Mark was an apostle. But actually, if you read church history, the very early writings you find that Mark was really close to Peter. And even the Bible, there's actually uh, evidence there. So Mark was a student of Peter. So sometimes people call Mark the gospel of Peter. Why? Because Mark must have listened to Peter's witnesses about Jesus' life and he wrote them down. What about Luke? Who was he related to? He traveled with the apostle Paul. What about the author of Hebrews? At the end of the letter, Hebrews 12, 23, he mentions the name Timothy. Who was Timothy? He was the chief student of the Apostle Paul, which means the author of Hebrews was really close to Paul himself as well. And what about James? James was half-brother of Jesus Christ, and he was also the pastor of Jerusalem church. He was working with the 12 apostles there right at Jerusalem. And also Jude was a half-brother of Jesus, and his letters resembles Peter's writings. Actually, 2 Peter and Jude are really, really similar. And by looking at those pieces of evidence, what we can conclude is that the New Testament all is the teachings of the apostles who were selected by the Lord Jesus Christ. So, and then there's another amazing evidence that you find in 2 Peter 3. Peter also considers the entire letters of Paul on par with the Old Testament. Look at verse 15, 2 Peter 3, 15, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is Savior, a salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things concerning salvation, in which are some things hard, hard to understand, 
which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction. As they do what? They do also the rest of the scriptures, the Old Testament. So there are four truths we find out of this, you know, two verses, these two verses. Paul wrote these letters with wisdom from God. Second, all of Paul's letters teach the doctrine of salvation, which the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught. And third, all of Paul's letters require interpretation, just like the Old Testament requires interpretation. And fourth, the result of misinterpreting Paul's letters is the same as misinterpreting the Old Testament. In other words, the New Testament is as authoritative as the Old Testament so that we can experience God through the New Testament just as we do so through the Old Testament. And this was the will of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord Jesus established the New Testament church on the foundation of the apostles. Of course, there are a lot of interpretations about Matthew 16, 18, where the Lord said, you're the Peter, upon this rock, I'll build my church. And many people say, you know, this upon this rock, that's not really Peter because he's not the first pope. But actually, I, I understand it as it's Peter. Not as Peter, a singular person, but Peter as a representative of the entire apostleship, apostleship, the, the 12 apostles. The reason why I believe that is Ephesians 2.20. Ephesians 2.20 says the New Testament, having been built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So the Bible is very clear that the New Testament church was built upon the apostles. What does that mean? It means our church, the entire New Testament churches, are built upon the teachings of the apostles of the New Testament. And how can we be sure that their teachings are authoritative as the Old Testament? The New Testament is all of Jesus' teachings coming down to us, three apostles. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Everybody, many of us already memorized it. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Have you wondered what Jesus means here? He's telling his disciples, apostles, to teach everything he taught. How is it possible? Do we have his, all his teachings? I was wondering when I read it. I mean, where do we find all Jesus' teachings? Right here. You have all Jesus' teachings in the New Testament. That's what Jesus meant when he says, Upon this rock, you Peter, you apostles, I'm going to build my church. And that's what Paul means when he says, Ephesians 2.22. You know, on the, upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, the New Testament has been built upon. So let's remember that the New Testament and the Old Testament are God's word through which we can experience God whenever we open them. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you so much for your love to us. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the Old Testament. Thank you for the New Testament. Lord, thank you that this is just one book. Although there are many individual books here, and there are two categories, Old and New Testament, but we know it's a one book because you revealed yourself in this unified book. And this is as, this is an authoritative, this is as authoritative, authoritative as your very own words because this is given by your own spirit through the holy man of God. So Lord, I pray that help us 
not to depend on subjective, subjective means by which we experience you all the time, but help us to depend on this objective truth that the most certain means by which we experience your word and just build this church, College Park Baptist Church, and also Cary Sarong Church that I'm planning now on this foundation that the Bible is the means by which we experience God whenever we open it with faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.